Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of You Have to Watch This. This is the podcast I do with my friend Ted Ryan. Ted, say hello. Hello. Last week, we talked about two sci-fi films. We talked about Kiron's um, Children of Men, and we talked about Metropolis, Fritz Lang's 1927 film. And this week, we decided to talk about kind of fun horror movies. So, Ted... It is your turn to do the coin flip. The ceremonial penny is in my hands. Oh, we should say that if you're noticing that we sound a lot better, um, it's because we got a significant... I got new glasses, actually. We got a significant upgrade to our <laughs> tech. We have a Blue Yeti mic now, so I'm really excited with that. And it is Tales for Ted. Tales for Ted. All right. So, the film that I would like to discuss today is the film that I recommended to you last week, which is Cronenberg's The Fly. This is one of my favorite films. This is a story, a classic science fiction tale, a sci-fi drama. Uh, What happens when man messes with nature and how he pays the price for his arrogance and fatal flaws. Uh, Jeff Goldblum plays the main character, uh, and he invents a machine, a teleporter, that allows for matter, both inorganic and living, to be transported against vast distances. Uh, in this film, he, uh, his character, Seth Brundle, befriends uh, a reporter, a journalist, played by Gina Davis, and the two develop a relationship over his scientific discovery. Clayton. What did you think of Cronenberg's The Fly? I really enjoyed it. Um, This has been every Halloween or every month of October. There's a list of horror movies I still haven't seen. In the last few years, this has been on the list (laughs) and is one of the more pressing ones. Um, So I was really excited when you recommended it and I was not let down. Um, I think a good place to start would be kind of talking about the three main characters. You brought up there's Veronica, Jeff Goldblum's character, and then kind of the douche boyfriend i don't i don't remember his the name. boss the, uh, the boss the boss <laughs> <laughs> um i thought jeff goldblum's performance through this transformation obviously you have the visual effects which we'll get into and that aspect of the transformation but his slow deviation from his original self in terms of acting was just incredible to watch and it makes sense why this film shot him up to stardom you know what i mean absolutely uh jeff goldblum gives a really powerful and moving performance in this film in a variety of ways you know uh this role he is and he takes is a very physical role you know where he you know he really transforms the way he walks and talks but he also gives a very nuanced performance within the physical you know um before essentially everything goes down, before not to get into spoilers, um, he gives a very sensitive performance, a, a very endearing, kind of loving performance. Um, and one thing that I forgot about is how much time we spend with him in the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. The film really, it's a, it's a perfect length and it spends the time at the beginning beginning of the story to make you care about the characters before the horror stuff starts happening. And it really eases into the horror, Mm -hmm. which, like, really puts you in the character's place. 
And I feel like you don't see that a lot in the horror genre. It's like, oh, these are just vehicles for... Jump scares. Br- yeah, jump scares are brutal murder scenes in the case of like slasher movies. But this film takes the time to get you to like these characters. Um, I think... I I feel like Veronica is just an awesome character. Definitely. She's empowered and... She starts off very gentle, but is still like a force of nature, I feel like, in both of the lives of the two male leads. Um, I guess male and then supporting. She really is the the protagonist in this yeah, story. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I don't think you realize that at first. So, I, I don't know. I just, I was watching the movie and I'm like, man, I really, really enjoy this character. I thought her performance was both vulnerable and kind of badass, if that makes sense. Yes, um, she's very self-determined, mm-hmm. and she kind of shuts people down when they try and tell her what to do. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, again, there's a lot of strong female characters in horror, and I think it's yeah. one of the best genres to find them in. Um, a fun fact, uh, Jeff Goldblum was, I believe, one of the first people cast in this film, and he recommended Gina Davis as Veronica. Because they were dating at the time. Okay. So I think their chemistry really comes on. That makes in, sense, yeah. In the film. And it's... Which leads me to my next point. This is one of the most sensual and sexual films I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, the Cronenberg is, you know, the master of body horror. But, again, the film takes a while to get to that horror premise. And... Well, the way things are filmed and the way characters interact with each other, it's it's very tactile and intimate. It's it's in a creepy way. You really feel like you're in that relationship that they're exploring. I think my favorite part about that relationship, actually, well, let me say first, I do agree with you that the movie is like very sensual, surprisingly, um, considering it's a body horror transformation movie. Um, it felt very moist. Like both characters always yes. felt always felt like wet. <laughs> Everything in the film has a layer of sweat on it, which yeah. we're gonna come back to. Okay, yeah, I was almost like um, I feel like Moonlight is like that as well, um, which captures kind of the aspect of living in Miami as well as that kind of more sensual nature. And Barry Jenkins plays on that a lot. But in this movie, I thought it accomplished a similar thing, but obviously in a very different context but what i was going to say about their relationship that i really liked is it felt like they were partners through all aspects of the relationship like obviously um romantically they were partners they were equals and then professionally as they're trying to figure out how this teleporter this whatever works it felt like they were equals and they were helping on each other and relying on each other definitely and I thought this movie started with the transformation, so seeing that slow <laughs> progression was something I really appreciated. And seeing how the relationship changes as the tragedy progresses is really the emotional heart to this story, where these two people do love and care for each other, and through this horrific story, seeing how normal people react to this type of circumstance is really compelling mm-hmm. and kind of building on that there what my probably my favorite aspect of the film even above the special effects and directing and the performances is the tone the film goes for 
this is such a sad and somber film, you mm-hmm. know? For a good majority of the film, it's literally, it's all night, a lot of blue colors, it's, you know, it's sad, you know, a lot of crying, a lot of misery, there's despair, and it feels, and it's, it's this interesting juxtaposition between, like, love and romance and this sorrow and ever-present lingering sadness, you know? This should be a, a great moment for science, you know, the the development of technology, but it, you know, humans inherent flaws yeah. and complications makes this wonderful thing a tragedy. Mm-hmm. I feel like the movie isn't indulgent in showing its body horror. It like it's showing you for a reason in terms of the characters of the plot. It's not just like, ooh, look at how gross we can make Jeff Goldblum. Like, there's a reason everything happens, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of leads into another point I wanted to make that. The film feels like it's only R-rated when it wants to be. Absolutely. With movies nowadays, they have to do they have to tick very specific boxes to make sure they land in PG-13, and a lot of films are going to shoot for that because that's where all the money is. Um, so when a film decides to go R, they're going to go R. You know what I mean? They're they going to get their money's worth. Yeah, they want as much blood and violence as they can squeeze in there. They're going to add profanity and sexuality and whatnot, and that's not automatically a bad thing. But if you're adding that... More often than not, it becomes a detriment to the film. Because you're watching an R-rated film rather than watching a film. That's R-rated. You know what I mean? Like, you should tell your story, and then whatever the MPAA decides to throw it in, they throw it in. I know that's not how the real world works, but it's annoying now that we can watch a movie and tell its rating... Whereas right. I, I couldn't do that with the fly. You cut like a couple things out and it's like, oh, this makes sense that this could be, this could get away with PG-13. You know what I mean? Especially mm-hmm. in the Temple of Doom era that this came out. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that's a good segue into spoiler territory because I think we should start talking about the special effects, which are mind blowing. Uh, I might've mentioned this on another podcast, but My favorite film of all time is The Thing, and there is something about the use of practical effects in horror films that really does it for me. You know, the the practical effects in this film are mind-blowingly good, and it's so hard to talk about them because they are brilliant. What did you think of them? I thought it's definitely, obviously, the strongest part of this movie. Um, we talked about this a bit with Metropolis, is you can get things to look as good as you want in a computer, and it will be impressive and I will enjoy it, but there's just something about knowing that this exists physically, that Veronica is, or the actress that plays Veronica is genuinely looking at something horrific, mm-hmm. and I feel like it helps her performance, and it helps the audience put themselves in the yeah. scene you have to suspend your disbelief less even if it looks less realistic you can tell that it did really exist when they were filming if that makes sense absolutely and one thing that really sells the special effects in this film and all great horror films with practical effects is the use of lighting and the care put into lighting a bulk of the scenes where there's um kind of like gross out horror effects going on uh, take place in Seth Brundle's uh, warehouse or apartment. And the whole that whole set is kind of 
has this dark lighting where it's these standing lamps or moonlight, blue moonlight through blinds. And the effect that it has where it's like you design these brilliant special effects and then you put them in shadow and darkness. You only see glimpses of them. And your brain, your imagination connects all the pieces. So it exists more in your mind than it does on screen. Because your, your imagination is at work at seeing what is going on. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I feel like usually people frame that um, idea like negatively, where it's like, oh, they didn't show the shark in Jaws because it looked shitty. But here it's like, it looks really good, and we're not going to show you as much as we could because we understand that the imagination is much more powerful than anything we could show. The, so. the use of restraint in this film mm-hmm. is to be applauded mm-hmm. because... This is like a trademark catchphrase at this point. In the hands of a lesser director, you know, they would <laughs> show off the props that they've spent three months designing, yeah. you know, and we don't get that. And it's way more impactful as a result. And then another thing with it not being indulgent is the runtime. We talked about this um, immediately after watching it. It doesn't, it's the exact length it needs to be you know what i mean it's patient in the beginning and we have the character development and even with the transformation as we move further into the movie but it doesn't create unnecessary subplots with characters we don't care about just to like make a two-hour runtime it's just perfectly restrained like you were saying both of these films are very lean in which we have a very limited set amount of characters yeah um, that all play off each other. They all serve a point in the story. They're intelligent. And it's like, there's no facts to be found. You know, you get in, see the movie. Get out. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we talked about this a bit in non-spoiler territory. But Jeff Goldblum's performance, once he actually is becoming the fly, is so well done my favorite part was the little head tick he does that you're like yeah, oh there's a spasm yeah you're like oh shit flies do do that and i mean i don't know if that necessarily took a lot of like preparation to figure out but it just shows it's believable you exactly see it and you're like you don't see it as acting it's like you see the character you know that the actor disappears in the role mm-hmm. and it's almost like if they didn't show you the fly in the thing you could start to make the connection yourself through the performance which I think is a testament to how well-crafted the visual effects are as well as the um, narrative and screenplay. And, you know, with some horror films, you could tell their focus is on the monsters, you know, yeah. or in others, they focus on the characters. This film feels balanced. You know, there's equal amount of love and care put into both. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't feel like one is at the expense of the other. Definitely. We've uh, we've talked a bit about the transformation. Do you want to move into kind of the ending in that last uh, 10 minutes? I It's been a while since I've rewatched the entire film. I want to say it's been maybe like four or five years. But I've rewatched the ending sequence a ton of times. And even though I knew what was going to happen, with the added weight and tension and rising tension of the film leading up to it, my heart was pounding the entire sequence and we just have a bombastic score by Howard Shore playing as Gina Davis's character confronts uh, Seth uh, and I, I don't want to go, I know we're in spoiler territory, <laughs> but I think, 
I don't want to really go into detail about what it looks like, but essentially the transformation is complete. And whatever you think it's going to look like... It's better. <laughs> it's better. It's, like, mind-blowingly better. And... You know, the, the sound design in that sequence and the, the, the rising score and there's a ticking clock element. It's just keeps building and building and building. And the, the release at the end is so heartbreaking and it's the perfect climax to this type of film. Can we just talk about one visual effect that uh, we, again, talked about immediately after watching it, but his face peeling off and his eyes like popping out and melting kind of. Oh, my God. God, that was that looks so good. <laughs> and oh, I thank you for saying that because not only does that happen, but underneath the final form, I guess you could call it. <sighs> I'm like getting chills just is, <laughs> talking about it. Is covered in mucus and slime, and it catches all the little reflections of the nearby light sources. You know, adding to that in a weird way sensual feeling. Like there's a tactile feeling. Like you know what the creature looks like based on how wet it looks you know you like you can feel it you know like you understand what that is when you're looking at it despite how horrifying it looks Mm -hmm. and another brilliant piece of sound design is when his skin starts falling off it plops to the ground in like wet meaty chunks that it's so gross slap on the ground and it's horrifying it Ugh, it's gross it's hard because this is a movie that strongest aspect is its visual so it's hard to talk about on a podcast and truly convey <laughs> how not only horrific but how effective it is but yeah i just that slow transformation and then like you were talking about the climax of the skin falling away to reveal the final form and then once he um merges with the telepod that's what happened right and he kind of has the like mechanical hr giger look and then the ending you're talking about it's even in the in its most horrifying form in the final moments we can still see the humanity underneath of this character that started out this as this youthful boy scout kind of yeah (laughs) loving life figure and the ending puppetry and special effects works really sells the emotion you don't see a creature you see the character and that's really the power of the visual effects definitely can i ask you a couple questions about the making of this movie sure do you know how much the budget was roughly because it's all shot in like one location so it made it feel like either the movie didn't have a huge budget or they had a good decent sized budget and they put all of it into visual effects i don't think it was a expensive film to make so there may be truth to that i know they had uh, at least like three months to do all the in pre-production for the visual effects for the monster stuff um but i don't know off the top of my mind uh and speaking of which uh there is one practical effect that i absolutely love uh there is a multiple sequences in the film where the character that is transforming is climbing on the walls of his apartment. Yes. And that is one of those classic, we built the entire set in a rotating barrel. You may be familiar with the scene in Inception. It's kind of that scene. Uh, And when you see it, it's one of those like, what? Like you can't believe what you're, it's such a simple effect that is so effective. I I just love that 
little bit. And he's doing the like head tick the whole time. It's like, oh my God, it's so good. Um, <laughs> just to kind of answer that question before, it looks like it had a $15 million budget, which in 86, I don't think was huge. It wasn't tiny, but um, it kind of makes sense that they had a decent amount of money to... Are you saying you asked me a question and you that you know the, knew the I answer I was looking to? it up. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's what podcasts are all about. It's discussion. <laughs> no, I looked it up. Um, and then it had kind of a modest gross. It says around, uh, like 40 million, which, um, it's cool that this has become kind of a cult classic in a way. I think it was one of those films that really took off on home video and after a modest box office. It plays on like HBO and kids record it without their parents knowing and then, uh, <laughs> watch it. Which I do want to mention, this film does have a sequel that I really enjoy um, it's called The Fly 2, and it is actually directed by the person who did the special effects, Chris Wallace. Um, I think it was his directorial debut, I'm not sure. And it essentially follows, it's a continuation of the story. And the special effects, again, are amazing. It is, some scenes are horrifying, and I think there was an NC-17 cut that they had a remove because it was that visceral oh um, man, that's probably awesome so it's it's not as good but i really enjoy the film and you know maybe not go out of your way to see it but <laughs> it's you won't regret watching it either it's it's fun and i love that the film closes the first credit scene is fly designed by chris wallace it's like you see like Doctor Strange now or Alita Battle Angel. And it's like, okay, the visual effects people should be first. You know what I mean? Because they made this movie. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll get to like the screenplay later because that wasn't as <laughs> big. But it's cool to see that um, the movie is strong in every regard, in my opinion. But it's cool to see that what this film is known for was immediately recognized as soon as the climax is resolved. And it's also great of Cronenberg to... Like it's great for a director to step down and yeah. acknowledge the work that the team put in. You know, it's it, you don't you never really see that. So that was one of those great like it just make, makes you appreciate the the effort and care and love that went into this film more so. Definitely. Um, any closing thoughts for the fly before we move on to our next film? I showed this not only to you but <laughs> to two of our friends that were downstairs as well. And um, if you've seen this before, I would get some friends that haven't seen it before and take the time to watch your friends squirm at this <laughs> film and run out of the room at certain scenes. It's This film's a blast. This film's fantastic. I love the performances. The score's amazing. Uh, this is definitely one of my favorite films. It's great. You have to watch this. <laughs> Your nervous, excited energy was definitely palpable while I was like, oh, something's coming. Yes. <laughs> that um, is going to spook all you, of us. You were watching the film through a uh, uh, closed hoodie. You know, your eyes just yeah. visible yeah. through that. Yeah. It was great. Uh, highly recommend this movie. It's exciting to have another week of hopefully positive recommendations. Definitely. Um, with that said, we're going to move into the movie... I recommended to you, Ted, and this was a South Korean zombie horror movie. Came out in 2016. It's named Train to Busan. It was directed by Sing Ho Yun, and hopefully I'm getting that pronunciation right. But basically, the premise of the movie is a father has to get his daughter 
um, to her mother, to his wife, his ex-wife, I believe, across South Korea. And while on the train, a zombie outbreak starts. And one of the zombies happens to wander on the train. So no place is safe. Train to Busan begs the question, what if World War Z was not sponsored by Pepsi? Ted, what did you think of this movie? Wow. <laughs> How do I follow that up? <laughs> you don't. We end it. <laughs> Thank you for watching. Um, or listening. I'm sorry. You can watch the podcast start. Uh, I really enjoyed this film. It was, I kind of didn't know what to expect going into it. I just knew zombies on a train. Um, that was the one sentence pitch. And... Yeah, I think um, zombie films is a very saturated horror genre. And the people behind this film, you could definitely tell they were fans of the genre. And I love seeing people's take on the zombie genre. I love that the film is in a non-Western country or setting. Um, It's always refreshing to see that, a familiar genre in a new locale. Um, the film delivers on its premise of zombies on a train. It has so much fun with the setting of the film. And Definitely. you really get to know the setting really well, just as the characters do. And so you're, as the characters are problem solving, you start to think like, well, what, what could they do? You know, how do they get past this? You know, and like other films we talked about, you really, you're in there with the characters in the trenches. Yeah. I think that's one of the strongest aspects of the film, because you think about the zombie genre and i feel like there aren't a huge number of entries that are actually genuinely good um you've got a couple by george romero some people like 28 days later but those movies kind of become character studies and that's not as interesting if i'm in the mood to watch a zombie movie (laughs) you got like the first season of the walking dead and that's awesome but then it (laughs) man what a tragedy it it takes a dump pretty quick (laughs) um So it's really refreshing to see a movie that's like, we're a zombie movie um, and we're going to show you what you want to see. The action set pieces are going to be fucking awesome, but we're going to surround it with heart and characters that you're going to find that you come to care about a lot. And that's refreshing in not only a horror movie, but in a zombie movie. One of my favorite uh, things in films is when the kind of the plot kicks off, you know, where... The, char- the main characters enter the setting, you know, mm-hmm. and we get a kind of a quick run through of like every single character that's going to be in this film, you know, and I love seeing that like, everything being set up and seeing things pay off and develop down the line is really satisfying. You know, um, every, every character in the story serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets their moment and the interactions between some of the characters are really charming. I mentioned that uh, in Hidden Fortress that that was like one of the first times that I really like the humor really worked for me despite it being subtitled. Mm -hmm. And this film also the humor really worked for me. Um, I don't remember their names, but the main character, the father, uh, he kind of has this back and forth relationship with this other guy that he's with who is a boxer or a fighter or a wrestler or a just a, a ripped dude. A ripped dude, a strong dude. Um, and their banter is really great. And seeing them go from enemies to allies was probably my favorite part of the film. 
Yeah, one quick thing on the humor. I love the joke where she opens up the Wii and he's like, what, you don't like it? And he, she looks over slowly to see a Wii that he got her last year. I don't know why, but that joke and then the set pieces and the ending are like the things that stuck with me for this movie. I think it's a good point to start moving into spoilers and start talking about the three-ish uh, big set pieces of this movie. The plot starts moving very quickly. It does. Uh, once it gets going. When the characters first realize that there are zombies on this train and what is happening. First off, I love the way the zombies move in this film. The kind of like contortionist nature to them. First off, they're so much scarier when they're quick. Um, yes. <laughs> like in World War Z, 28 Days Later and I Am Legend. Um, like it's much more horrifying when you don't know if you can outrun them. Um, so that already is really enjoyable and then you also have the contortionist nature of these characters of these zombies and that does a good job of making them look inhuman and infected without relying on practical effects it's relying on performance it gives that uncanny valley effect where it's like it's obvious that this is an actual actor but the way they're moving is so unnatural your brain has this kind of disconnect like what like you don't know what to think when you see them Mm-hmm. moving and twitching in a horrible way after they've been horrifically maimed and they're still alive. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So they kind of close off the area and they try and pull into a train station that they hope is safe. Um, all the humans that are left leave the train car and start progressing through uh, this train station. What did you think of that set piece that, and what followed? I, uh, it was fun. It was a fun sequence. I, I don't know if I have much to say about it. I thought it was really good. And it's, you know, as a film viewer, you know, something's going to go wrong in yeah. the back of your mind. And there's, there's signs that something's not right. You know, where's mm-hmm. the military? Where's the police? Where, where is everyone? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, something's about to happen. And then when you see it starts happening, you're like, oh oh no <laughs> like you know? sit up in your chair yes when they're going down the escalator a why would you take an escalator during a zombie apocalypse <laughs> that's a horrible idea and b when they're going down and see all the zombies yes <laughs> oh my god that was so effective and just like like you're saying one of those like oh shit moments it was oh it was awesome one thing that i want to come back to is that it's fun seeing something in a non-western setting it's also fun seeing a film where the technology is still working. You have escalators, yeah. you have news stations, you have radio, you have trains, and you, most importantly, you have cell phones. The characters in this film are so intelligent, and everything they do is so, like, yes, that's what I would do in yeah. a zombie apocalypse, you know? Like, it's so satisfying to see smart characters problem solve. And the script doesn't necessarily be like, you have to get to this point later on, so we're going to give you this knowledge just kind of randomly. It's like, these are just human characters that are smart and competent without having the script throw them bones and making it feel like, oh, you only got here because the screenwriter wanted to get here. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. They succeed because of who they are. Exactly. So yeah, we have this set piece with all the zombies running through. <laughs> oh, man, when the one like jumps out... Uh, in front of the father and the daughter character and then the um, homeless man, I believe. 
uh, and then start coming to them. And then you see in the background behind the daughter all the zombies coming. Yes. Oh, and they use slow-mo so effectively. And the like kind of buff character, who's... I shouldn't use his name. <laughs> Sang-hua. I'm definitely butchering that. But he just comes out and he like elbows the zombie out of the way of the awesome. daughter. The f- oh, there's so something so badass about punching zombies. Right. We were talking about this while we were watching the movie, but just because they're only really dangerous if you're close to them. So allowing yourself to get that close um, to vanquish them is so cool. <laughs> I I like that the... The characters are scared, but they conquer their fear. You know, like, we have ish- problems we need to solve, like, right now, or else our loved ones are going to get hurt. We have to do something now. And yeah. seeing them throw themselves at this impossible-to-defeat to foe is really compelling and enjoyable. That kind of naturally brings us into the next big scene. So they make us, they make it onto the train, but they're separated. You have... Um, I don't remember the exact characters, but includes the daughter and the wife of Sangwa um, trapped in a restroom in car 13. And uh, Sangwa and the father, our main character, and one of the baseball, baseball players, players, one of the younger guys, um, are trapped in car 9. And they're like, well, we have to save them, but we have to go through four cars of zombies. So they look around and see what's available, and they duct tape their arms and... Baseball player has his baseball bat, and they literally just, like, walk through the train, beating the shit out of these zombies. And we, we talked about it before, but the setting, like, it's one of those, like, I guess a fantasy where it's like, you know, if a terrorist entered the room right now, what would be my, what would be my plan of attack? Yeah. Like, seeing a familiar setting in a new light as, like, an obstacle. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, you've been in a train before, but... You know, seeing the overhead compartment, like, man, I really want to climb that. And then (laughs) seeing the characters actually climb, it's like, yes, like, it's a dream come true seeing that on the film, you know? Yeah, it's like when you're, okay, I'm in school right now. If a zombie apocalypse started, where would I go? Like, me and my friends in high school used to talk about that regularly. Um, And it's cool. It's like, yep, this is what you would do if you were stuck on a train. Yeah. Um, I just think the action choreography through that is awesome. Like, you have the kind of it doesn't cut as rapidly as you see with um, most blockbuster action movies in the West, um, which is always really refreshing to watch. It just relies on the actors knowing what to do and the stunt people knowing what to do. And I I don't know if I'm remembering it correctly, but I think in some of the sequences they use a wide-angle lens that allows you to, like, you can see a majority of the cabin as the camera's yeah. moving. And so that really helps, like, understanding where each character is physically in the scene mm-hmm. as well as you know how the following action is going to occur mm-hmm. it could feel really congested and kind of overstimulating if you're trapped inside a cabin with the camera and all the zombies and all the crew but you only feel claustrophobic when the movie wants you to feel yes. claustrophobic like when it's going through this cabin you can see the three heroes and the first round of zombies like all in one shot and it's like the camera's outside of the car, basically, but because you see the seats as well. It's just so effectively directed, and it's really refreshing because it's not the techniques we see typically in the West, especially in this genre. So they end up saving uh, the people in the other car, and then in the process of kind of getting to the safer front of the train, 
Um, we lose what? Who's my favorite character? The uh, buff guy saying "wah." The tank. The tank. Yeah, basically, <laughs> um, holding the door for everyone else to pass by, and it kind of teaches our main character the power of self-sacrifice and. He has to take up this leader role that he didn't sign yes. up for and until right now wasn't really in, which is cool to see a protagonist kind of earn his title as the protagonist. How did that emotional scene work for you? It was kind of like the fun, tragic moment, you know, where it's yeah. like you can lean forward and be, no, you know, shake your fist at the screen, you know. I, I don't know if it got a, a genuine emotional impact, yeah. but... It did get an impact on me. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what you just mentioned about the character growing into the leadership role. I love that. you know, mm-hmm. And seeing him... It's a very visible character growth throughout the film. You know, he... It's satisfying. It is. I, I really enjoy that um, narrative choice. They kind of reunite. There's not a whole lot left of our gang. And... They make it into a train station just before Busan, I believe, right? Um, And the conductor kind of says, if any of you are left, I'm transferring to this train. So now, (laughs) again, all the human characters have to try and get out of this train and move to another one. One thing leads to another, and a flaming train car ends up coming through and kind of opening up. It looked like several train cars full of zombies. Yeah sounds like that part wasn't as convincing for you that this sequence in the film is by far my least favorite interesting sequence okay. in the entire film um i enjoyed the conclusion to the scene but in the midst of it i found it incredibly confusing um i kind of had a hard time figuring out where people were in relation to one another yeah especially the baseball player and his cheerleader girlfriend it was kind of i was really struggling in that sequence of like like oh, oh okay uh what you know and but you know it does have a fun payoff where the running zombies trace at trace chase after our protagonist in the moving train car and they create almost like a human dog pile or how would you describe that? Like a yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Like one is holding onto the train, and then they all kind of pile up and w- are being dragged. I want to say like an ant hill. You know when ants yeah. climb over each other, but picture that, but humans being dragged by a train. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those like you could tell they had fun doing that sequence, and you could tell like it was one of those like I never thought I would see this happening on screen. You know, it was like this is something new. This is something weird. And just the scale of, like, you have the train slowly pulling away, and it's like, oh, there's a handful of zombies. And then, like, the next shot, it's, like, double that. And then the next shot, it's, like, <laughs> hundreds, it and looks it's like. physically slowing down the yeah. train, which is increasing, like, a t- it's a ticking talk, ticking clock element. <laughs> I, um, I agree that choreography-wise, this is definitely the probably weakest um, action sequence. Um, it's not my favorite. I do think it works because of the scale like also when all the zombies break through the window and it's just like, like it goes down the train car of just zombies falling out and then slowly starting to jump over one critique of the film i do have is that i don't enjoy the glass breaking special effects <laughs> oh did they not look good they didn't look good to me they felt 
very digital. Yeah. Um, I wish they had more practical glass, but for some of the scenes, I could understand why. But again, you know, oh well. I'm sure they had their reasons for doing digital glass in the manner they did. I just enjoy practical effects. I could definitely see that. I could think of a few other digital effects that weren't as convincing. Um, I think I didn't notice that specifically because I was more focused on the scale that they were trying to accomplish. As someone who is really into special effects, I'm always, when I'm watching a film, I have in the back of my mind, I wonder how they did that. Yeah. And... It's kind of like when they're bad, it takes me out of the film. So mm-hmm. that's just something I wanted to mention. Definitely. So then three of our main characters make it onto our, the train. We have um, the father-son uh, main duo. And then we also have sang wife, uh, who's pregnant. I don't think we said that um, explicitly earlier. So the three of them make it onto this escaping train that's heading to Busan. And kind of the antagonist of the movie who represents kind of what the protagonist could have become almost this like evil corporate guy who's very greedy and selfish. He's also on the train, but he got bit. So in the process of trying to wrangle him off the train are, well, maybe we should hold on that for a minute because the way he throws him off the train of like tying himself in and then throwing both of them off while he's like attached (laughs) Oh man, that was so cool. <laughs> it, it made me think of um, the scene in Die Hard when he uses the fire yes. hose as a kind of support. Like, I gotta think of something fast, and then he just grabs something that would could work. It might not work. Kind of seeing the mundane used in a fantastical way is yeah. really compelling. And it's like, oh, that that makes sense that this character, who we've learned through the film is is competent, would do something like this, and. I just, I love stuff like that. I love the scrappiness of this movie. There's not a single gun in the whole film either. Right. Or I guess at the end, but we never see one fire, which um, is definitely refreshing. And it's another one of those constraints that forces them to be more creative. Definitely. But so our main character's bit um, and he kind of has to say his goodbye to his daughter as well as um, Sangwa's wife. I know you said that... um, the earlier moments were kind of more fun, tragic. Did you find this ending part moving? Because I have a, I have a couple uh, conflicting ideas about it. Um, I wasn't a fan of the ending, specifically this scene. I felt, I don't want to say the film robbed me of a happy ending, but it, I didn't really leave the film in a good mood. Interesting. Um, okay. I. I felt when he was saying goodbye to his daughter and the wife character, I wish I knew their names. I hate say, I hate saying them by these labels, you know, like reducing them to a label. Oh, um, gosh, I have no idea how to pronounce it. I will say the wife character, uh, <laughs> she is fantastic in this film. and Oh, yeah, definitely. Is really funny and her relationship with the tank character uh, is great. Um, yeah, I... I, I didn't like that he was bitten. Yeah. It Okay. So when talking about the fly, we have a, a, a character who starts up high and is a fall from grace. Mm-hmm. And then in this film, we have a character that starts low, grows as a person, grows as a leader, 
and then in the end has to sacrifice himself as the final moment of leadership. I felt like the emotional payoff to his arc wasn't really satisfying. I felt it was like, oh, I'm bitten. Goodbye. I love yeah. you. I can't stay long. Bye. And it wasn't satisfying to me. I um I don't disagree with you. I thought him actually talking to his daughter and kind of the fact that he didn't explicitly say goodbye felt like it was like you have to take care of her and her baby and whatnot and it was very like pragmatic i felt like that scene actually worked for me because of the daughter's performance as a she's great in this yeah as a child actress she is very convincing because um and a lot of the emotional points in the movie kind of rely on her so that was really nice to see um him his silhouette kind of falling off the train was a little like on the nose for me (laughs) It, it was cheesy but I enjoyed it in a fun, like, huh, kind of way, you know? (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, so I I definitely see what you're saying. This movie is fun, so a happier ending would have been nice. But I do feel like we get some reward because instead of a kind of a vague ending that we see with these kind of movies, it's pretty explicit that the wife and the daughter (laughs) make it to um, Busan, and it is a safe place. Um, They almost get shot by military people, but... um, (laughs) We do have that kind of release of at least two of the characters we've grown to really love over this movie surviving. I don't know how to verbalize. I agree with what you're saying, but I don't know how to verbalize how I feel about the ending. I and I can't like everything that it does is competent and well directed mm-hmm. with the ending, but I don't know. I just don't know what it's missing for me. It just didn't do it for me. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I don't disagree. I think parts of the ending are probably the weakest parts of the movie for me as well. Um, It is hard to articulate, but I don't think it's enough to compromise either the arcs our characters go on or the previous action scenes we had seen. I also feel like the ending is somewhat abrupt. Yeah. I felt like the the pacing was really consistent um, throughout most of the film in terms of like how long scenes are and problems being solved and all that and i felt like the ending was so quick like it felt like scenes were removed or something it just in the back of my mind i feel like there is more here that i'm not getting maybe it does definitely feel like the third act like characters start dropping off quicker and um the scenes feel a little more disjointed but i don't know i'm not sure if scenes were cut or if some other reason led to part missing. I wonder if it's just hard to end movies like this because right. 28 days later also ends really abruptly. And I think there's a bunch of different cuts, but the cut I watched was um, weirdly satisfying. Cause I think there was a like <laughs> deeply, deeply messed up ending as well. Um, so I don't know. It's hard to kind of conclude horror movies with a neat bow, but just got a fire shotgun off. And yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah. Have a booming score as the credits appear. Yeah. Just credits as soon as the villain is vanquished. <laughs> <laughs> but cool. It sounds like overall um, another week where movies were enjoyed. This was a yeah. fun genre. I really like horror. And we're definitely going to return to it. Definitely. Possibly as soon as this week. Ted, our genre is book adaptations. 
What movie will I be watching? So, in a previous podcast, I had mentioned that I had seen Misery in at the Little Theater in Rochester, and it's fresh in my mind, and I had seen it before, but I just got, I had the same, if not greater, reaction to the film on a second rewatch. So, I am recommending to you Misery, starring James Kane and Kathy Bates. Awesome. I'm excited. Um, I had an idea <laughs> that we were going to get this one, <laughs> but I am also staying in the genre of horror for my movie recommendation, my book adaptation recommendation. Um, <laughs> it was recently revealed to me that you have yet to see Silence of the Lambs, which I'm pretty sure is illegal in some of the Midwest <laughs> states, like definitely at least Montana. It's illegal to have not seen Silence of the Lambs. So I'm just doing you a service. This movie's on Netflix. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Me too. Ted, is there anywhere people can find your art? Yes. You can find all of my art and more at Ted Ryan Art at These Fine Times on Twitter. You can see the podcast art that is for this podcast uh, that you're currently listening to on that, as well as some schoolwork that I am in the midst of. Awesome. And I also host Stories Worth Sharing in the Terry Talks podcast. One of those is also about movies. Uh, highly recommend you check them out. Our intro song is Outro by Wolfpeck. And I want to thank Anchor for making this podcast possible. I forgot to do that the previous episodes. But um, yeah, you wouldn't be listening to this if it wasn't for Anchor. So thank you, Anchor. And thank you for listening. Bye.